Good evening, good evening, good evening. It's 6 o'clock, and this is the Mark Riley Show. I am he, and uh, we're eight days from Christmas, and can't you tell <laughs> how crowded it is uh, on the trains, on the streets of this great city, the greatest city in the world? We've got some... Break- Jason, we got breaking news today, okay? When I made up the template this morning, I had no idea that President Obama would announce that the United States and Cuba will resume relations. Not those kind of relations, you deviates. Relations that haven't been in place for five decades. Now, this doesn't mean the embargo's over, because I I ran into some people earlier. Hey, the embargo's over. When can I get my cigars? Well, no, not just yet. But there are a lot, and I do mean a lot, of loosened restrictions that come with this action by the president. And Alan Gross, a man who had been incarcerated in Cuba for five years, he's trying to apparently, and I can't quite figure out what this was, but he was trying to bypass or or install some kind of technical equipment that would bypass Cuba's filters on the Internet uh, or Cuba's ban on the Internet, depending on who you listen to or who you read. Uh, they locked him up, and he was in prison. For, he lost a lot of weight. Uh, he was apparently talking about suicide, uh, but he's free. He landed at Andrews Air Force Base earlier today. Uh, apparently, Secretary of State John Kerry met with him and his wife and family. So, I, I, to me, this is a win-win situation, okay? It's something that probably should have been done about 40 years ago, even though there are a lot of people— And Cuba cuts across bipartisan lines. What do I mean by that? Marco Rubio, Republican, Cuban-American. Bob Menendez, from right over in Jersey, Cuban-American. Both denounced what the president did. Others, including a Republican who actually went on the trip to go get Alan Gross, apparently, said "This this is a good step toward normalizing relations. Now, what this is going to mean in the long term, I do not know. You know, cigar smokers may be able to rejoice after a while. I know there are relaxations on who can go to Cuba. Remittances have been increased from 500 bucks to 2000 bucks. These things I know. What it's going to mean in the long run, I don't know. But it was one of those surprise announcements that drives certain Republicans crazy because it's like, wait a minute, you can't act on your own. What's wrong with you? But that's just what he did. And I think he did a good thing. And, uh, you know, it, it has nothing to do with cigars or anything else. I think he did a good thing. It's time to normalize relations because through normalization, perhaps, you're able to speak to whatever problems you may have with alleged human rights violations inside Cuba. You might be able to go to the, an embassy, which they're apparently going to be opening, and say, hey, what are you doing with, with folks down here? Now, it's not like the United States, and I think we ought to be clear about it, it's not like the United States does not support any despotic regimes around the world. It's just that certain of them we don't like more than others. Uh... North Korea is an example. 
You see, hey, Jason, you see this thing about this movie, The Interview? They canceled the opening now on the 25th. It's over. It's done. Not going to happen. And it's not because we love uh, Kim Jong, whatever his name is. It's on account of somebody has been threatening to do all kinds of damaging, harmful, potentially lethal stuff if the movie came out. That's an interesting precedent, a very interesting precedent that could be had there. Now, I want to let people know, uh, because my wife would not let me in the house if I didn't, that you can text me. If you can't call me at 888-874-4888, that's 888-874-4888, you can text me. It will come up as an email, and I will read your text on the air. It's 917-830-3023. 917-830-3023. So that's one, Jason, one piece of good news today. You know what the other one is? Cuomo's ban fracking. Another piece of good news. Now, there was a kind of de facto moratorium, to use academic language, on fracking in New York State anyway. But now... Apparently, they finally dropped that health study. <clears throat> and some of you, Jason, you remember when I had that guy on not that long ago that talked about the potential air problems with fracking? Well, maybe they read what he had to say because uh, Dr. Howard Zucker, who's the acting state health commissioner, cited not just water pollution concerns, but air pollution concerns. So uh, two wonderful, wonderful pieces of news that I was not aware of when I got out of bed this morning. So hallelujah on those two counts. However, eight days before Christmas, there's a lot of ugliness in the world. A lot of ugliness in the world. This thing with the Taliban, you know, they've already started burying some of these 141 children. Who they massacred? They didn't just kill them. They massacred them in Pakistan. Now, let's step back for a moment and think about this. They kill all of these folks in Pakistan, and we wring our hands and say, "Gee, you know what's going on here?" Forty-three Mexican students were massacred and apparently placed in a shallow grave. In Mexico, not that long ago. Two years ago, a guy, for reasons best known only to himself, and he's dead, massacred 20 kids at the Sandy Hook Elementary School, which I attended as a kid in Newtown, Connecticut. That's right. I grew up in Newtown, Connecticut. Now, People may say, I don't know whether you can really equate all three of these things. I do. Because you're killing innocents. I don't care if it's the Taliban, Adam Lanza, or whoever the Mexicans are that did that dirty deed there. There should be. Now, obviously, in Adam Lanza's case, that's done in Newtown. But as far as the Taliban is concerned... There should be no safe harbor for these people anywhere on this planet. You're going to massacre children 
in the name of religion? You're going to massacre students in the name of ideology? That's just plain filth. Nothing but filth, wherever it's done. It is, by the way, it is also indicative of cowardice on the part of the people that did this. Cowardice. Punk behavior. Take the most vulnerable people in our society and kill them to make your point. I don't think you should be killing anybody in the name of ideology, religion, or anything else for that matter. But in this instance, you're killing children in the name of your religion slash political outlook on life? That's just, you know, uh, to call it doggish behavior is to dignify it. It is abhorrent behavior. And all of this back and forth about, well, the Pakistanis are asking for Afghans' help, and this one's happening. And they all turn to the United States and say, hey, help us out here. Okay. Then you, if, if you want America's help, so this is just my opinion. You want America's help, you make it impossible. I don't care what, you know, outposts or mountainous regions or whatever. You make it impossible for these people to organize and do this sort of thing. Make it impossible. That's not on us. That's on them. That's on the Pakistanis. That's on the Afghans. That's on the people who the Taliban have apparently managed to find safe harbor in their jurisdictions. How can, and this is what kind of puzzles me. How can people be in favor of that? How can people say, oh, yeah, that's fine? Apparently, it was some kind of revenge thing for something else that happened. How do you kill children? In whose name do you kill children? And the Taliban is like, yeah, we did it. Yo, there should be no safe harbor. And by the way, that includes places in this country and in Europe where these folks are trying to recruit members, people, fellow travelers, people of similar ideology. Root them out, and if they're not here legally, bounce them. Not saying shoot them or kill them. That would descend, that would cause America to descend to their level. Bounce them. Send them back to wherever they came from with that kind of nonsense. Closer to home... Some of you may know the name uh, Eric Linsker, I think his name is. Let me make sure about his name. He was the guy that got busted. Eric Linsker from Brooklyn. Adjunct professor, apparently, uh, at at least one institution of higher learning. He was hit with seven, count of seven different charges, including robbery. Assault on a police officer, rioting, resisting arrest, reckless endangerment, obstructing government administration, and unlawful possession of weed, which, by the way, should only be a violation. For an incident that took place on the Brooklyn Bridge about 7 some odd, 7.30 or so Saturday night. The details of what actually took place and Linsker's involvement in it are still a little murky. I saw some video 
of, I guess, an assistant DA in Manhattan trying to explain how heinous what Eric Linsker did. And the judge wasn't even buying it. Just like, what are you talking about? They say that he threw a garbage can, I guess, from the walkway to Brooklyn Bridge down and aimed it at a cop below. Linsker's position is he just picked up the garbage can, was trying to move it. He was not intending on throwing it on anybody. They're also, and I don't know that they've gotten them yet. Jason, have you heard they busted any of those other six people they were looking for, for being those rioters or whatever? Now, here's the thing, because Eric Linsker is Eric Linsker. What has happened is those who want to undermine the message of the protests have taken these incidents and I believe there, there were some police officers assaulted, and you don't want to make light of that. All right? See, to me, fighting with cops is a zero-sum game, okay? Uh, they got guns. So, you know, uh, I would have to think they were showing some level of restraint if, you know, they didn't draw down on somebody, punched them in the face, which is one of the allegations that said they broke a, a cop's nose. It's not cool. Not what you do. However, let us leave that alone for the moment. Uh, the bottom line here is as follows. It's, it's, it's just stupid. And the, the attempt to undermine the protests, also stupid. I mean, I may not agree with... You know, people that say all cops are racist, racist cops, racist cops. I I don't agree with that. I know cops who are not racist. I've known cops all my life who are not racist. There are excesses in police culture that have been tolerated for an extraordinary period of time. And one of the reasons why they are tolerated is because so few police officers who are accused of violent malfeasance ever have to pay a price for it that i'll say without question but you know the the whole cops are racist cops now apparently some protesters are scheduled to meet with mayor de blasio uh now they say they were scheduled to meet with him today Mayor de Blasio was on Rikers Island for part of the day today, but maybe he's meeting with them later on in the day or this evening or tomorrow sometime. I don't know. But hopefully something fruitful can come out of that. The protests, I believe, as long as the protesters choose to continue, they should continue. They should continue. Eric Garner, Ferguson, Cleveland, Phoenix, which nobody talks about, all these different places where unarmed black people have been killed, There is a demand for redress, a demand for justice. And if the protests are moving those demands, good on them, as one of my friends frequently says. Now, we're going to shift gears just a bit. I got a lot more stuff to talk about, which we'll talk about after we talk to our very, very, very special guest. Because we're going to talk about New York City's economy. You know, we're told that the city's economy is getting better with each passing day, each passing week, each passing month. Yet there are questions about just how well it's doing and how well it's doing for large swaths of both Americans and New Yorkers. 
here with us to sort this out is the Deputy Director and Chief Economist of the Fiscal Policy Institute, Mr. James Parrott. Jim, how you doing? I'm fine, Mark. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for uh, being here with us. Uh, so is the glass half full or is the glass <laughs> half empty here in the five boroughs of New yeah. York City? Well, you could. That's probably the the appropriate way to look at it. It, it, it it's both at the same time. <laughs> it's good in that you know, the overall economy is not in recession. We've you know this is now the completing the fifth year of recovery. Mm-hmm. So you you know that's good. Uh, what's not so good is that. Well, we've had you know pretty decent job growth in New York. Too many of the jobs being added pay low wages, and uh, just as uh, you know, much a reason for concern is that very few workers are getting any meaningful pay increases. So family incomes are not rising due to wage increases. Not you know, so it's not making possible an increase in living standards. And, you know, that's, that's what we usually expect from a recovery, that people's incomes rise, they mm-hmm. do better, their, their uh, families prosper as a result of that, they're able to save for the future uh, and live in the present. Jim, why are people's incomes stagnating like this? Are, are, are uh, America's employers just playing Ebenezer Scrooge or something? What's going on here? Well, you know, there's been a real shift in recent years. It's not, you know... While the current conditions are sort of unique in this in, in this post financial crash uh, historically weakest recovery, this is the weakest recovery in the in U.S. history since the 1930s. Um, but it but what's been developing over the last 30 years or so, you know, we've talked about this before: the sure. continuing concentration of income at the top. So what growth and in income the, uh, is produced by economic growth more and more is, uh, you know, gets, uh, ends up benefiting mainly the people at the top. It's not broadly shared. Wages are the, are the best way to do that. So uh, the profit share of national income is at historic uh, high levels. Even though unemployment is coming down, people are not seeing uh, wage gains that are normally associated with unemployment dropping. So it really has been, you know, what you could consider sort of a structural shift in the economy. It's going to take a lot of things to reverse that. There are some glimmers of hope here in, in, in New York City in terms of um, the mayor expanding and implementing paid sick days mm-hmm. for workers who didn't have that before extending the coverage of the living wage in New York City and raising the level. But we really need to get the minimum wage up to a better level. And, you know, in a a promising sign, there's a lot of organizing going on out there uh, uh, for fast food workers and Mm -hmm. for other workers talking about a $15 an hour minimum wage. And some cities around the country, like Seattle and San Francisco, are acting on that. You know, it's interesting you say that. Um, because, you know, we have the, the car wash folks uh, here who have been uh, uh, organizing and agitating. But there seems to be, Jim, a, a tremendous pushback uh, against gains in, in uh, worker wages generally, particularly at the bottom end of the scale. It's almost as if some, and, and it's not just employers, some of it is the business press, uh, they they try to make the case that these folks aren't worth the money they're getting paid now. 
Yeah, that 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 situation is really hard to believe when you think about what it costs to live in New York City. You know, there there was uh, something called the self-sufficiency standard budgets for New York City that was uh, published last week. It's updated every four or five years. The 2014 edition came out. That you know puts together what it takes for a family to meet their basic uh, needs in New York City. And you know, with with without recourse to uh, uh, various forms of public assistance or help from a rich uncle, and so on. It, you know, it takes sixty to seventy-five thousand dollars for a family of three or four to make ends meet in New York City. So, you know, eighty percent of workers in New York City are not making a self-sufficient uh, budget uh, really? wage. So, you know, and it's really hard for the people who are making minimum wage, which is $8 an hour now. At the end of this month, it will go to eight seventy-five. still far too little. You know, how, how's a family, how's a person supposed to support a family? How is somebody even with two of those jobs full-time or two full-time earners making, making that wage? You don't come close to what it takes to, to uh, meet uh, basic family budget needs in New York City. So... The people who think that those workers are not entitled to that, um, you know, they're just living in a uh, in a make-believe world. Jim, how do people that you just described, I mean, obviously making ends meet is one thing, but, you know, the way out of low wages usually is uh, has a component of education. How are these folks looking to afford even... Uh, uh, the relatively low tuition costs right. at city and state schools of higher education in this area if they're struggling just to make ends meet with the paychecks they're getting. You know, it's really hard for people to save uh, for to finance their own education or, or to save for their uh, children to go to college. You know, there's a real issue with skyrocketing uh, college tuition and other costs and the heavy student loans uh, and people who are getting out of college with a with a degree and not being able to find decent paying work where they can even you know uh, realistically pay off the student loans that they have what what we have seen though is that even as a growing share of the workforce in new york city has a four-year college degree Wages adjusted for inflation for college-educated workers haven't been rising. In fact, they've been falling about fifteen percent in the last in the last ten years. So, it, you know, while getting more education is really beneficial and important for everyone to do, that's not sufficient. We need to do other things to raise wage standards uh, to induce employers to pay their workers uh, a better salary. Otherwise, we're not going to have an economy that functions or grows on a sustainable basis in a way that benefits most people. James Parrott is our guest. He is the Deputy Director, Chief Economist at the Fiscal Policy Institute based right here in New York City. Jim, let me ask you this, um, because there was a report that just came out. You guys put it out. And it says New York City's real per capita GDP... That's the economic output per resident. Grew by nearly 60% in the period from 1990 to 2012. Yet inflation-adjusted median family income declined 15%, as you just pointed out. And median hourly wages went down 10%. How can Because it sounds to me like 
uh, economic output per resident sounds an awful lot like productivity to me. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that that uh, those figures sort of, uh, you know, uh, signal this uh, increased polarization of uh, income that we've been talking about. So the economy grows. Uh, GDP output per worker grows, you know, pretty impressively over that over that time of uh, over that period of time. That's two to three percent a year. That's mm-hmm. not bad, and, and you would expect that should translate. And in this country, in the years after World War II, in the 1950s, 60s, and early part of the 70s, the economy as the economy grew, living standards grew rose across the board, the middle income expanded, uh, people in the middle class expanded, and their living standards rose, in line with the growth in productivity. Since about 1980, when Ronald Reagan came into office, uh, we, 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 we've had a divergence of wage and income growth and productivity growth, and workers are not seeing the benefit of the prosperity that they help create. Now, I, I'm, I'm curious, too. Because the report says something that that is kind of uh, troubling, uh, if, you know, if you're not somebody that wants to look at the world starkly through racial and ethnic lines. However, um, economic disparities do in fact exist along racial and ethnic lines, yep, according absolutely. to the report. Poverty rate is high at 14 percent for non-Hispanic whites, 23 percent for blacks, Latinos 26 percent, Asians 29 percent. Of all working poor families in the city of New York. Eighty-seven percent are headed by a person of color, or working families headed by a person of color are more than twice as likely to be low income as a working family headed by a white non-Hispanic person. How can the mar- can can government, rather than the marketplace, address that disparity? Well, I think government can certainly you know make make the first big step and encourage businesses to do what, after all, is in their own interest. The, the, their sales depend upon consumers having decent incomes. Consumers having decent incomes depends upon having a realistic, meaningful wage floor where workers can capture a proportionate share of the, of the productivity that they, that they help create. So New York City, you know, doesn't have the power right now on its own, but the mayor is certainly seeking authority from Albany to have the city raise its minimum wage up to 30% above the state level. We should also get the the state minimum wage up. Mm -hmm. Back in May, when Governor Cuomo was anxious to get the Working Families Party endorsement, he committed to both things, to both raise the state minimum wage to $10.10 an hour and to support giving New York City and other localities that choose to go that way the authority to raise their minimum wage above that. So you know that should happen that's an important thing that government can do but but businesses uh need to see the value in investing in their workers providing more skills more career advancement opportunities and that will <clears throat> that will generate benefits for them in more productive workers workers and and savings from not having to recruit and train new workers all the time. If workers are more contented, morale increases, their productivity increases, the service they can provide to the customers uh, grows uh, uh, over time. There's a real payoff for businesses in doing that. So 
Mayor de Blasio can certainly, you know, both, you know, try and get the the uh, the policy achievement of raising the minimum wage to a better level in New York, and use his bully pulpit to to constantly encourage employers to help to do what's in their own interest mm-hmm. and in the interest of the entire city. How does housing and affordable housing specifically, which the mayor has uh, promised to build 200,000 units, how does affordable housing play into this equation? Well, it's, you know, uh, <clears throat> if uh, people uh, don't have to spend as much of their income on housing, then their wages don't have to rise quite as high in order to have a decent uh, living standard. But also, if if New York City doesn't maintain a reasonable uh, stock of affordable housing, we're going to continue, and I, I think we've started to see this, where low-income families just simply can't afford to live in New York City and pull up stakes and, and move elsewhere. In, in, in dissecting the American Community Survey, the, the, a, a survey that the Census Bureau does uh, every year, and looking at that data for 2013, it really looks like that New York City lost about 10,000 low-income families, and their place was taken by 10,000 higher-income families, not just middle-income families, but income uh, 10,000 families with the highest incomes coming in on top. Now, so that had the beneficial effect of raising the median family income in New York. But, you know, what it means in, in, in reality is that New York City is, is becoming so unaffordable that low and moderate income people are are heading for the exits. I don't think that's the kind of New York City that we want. Uh, no, certainly not the one that I want. Jim Parrott, let me uh, uh, close this by asking you this question. We have a, a listener who calls us from South Carolina periodically, and you can hear the rage in this man's voice. He's a construction worker, and you can hear the rage in his voice about what he sees as economic slash income inequality where he lives and across the country. And I think one of the things he gets upset about is that politicians, generally speaking, New York may be an exception, may not be, depending on how you look at it, but that politicians, generally speaking, don't seem to have, uh, uh, you know, the, the concerns, economic concerns specifically, of low-wage and moderate-income people across this country, and, and there's a lot of people. Do you get a sense that there is a growing rage among these folks at their lack of upward mobility, at their uh, uh, inability to break the cycle of living paycheck to paycheck? Oh, absolutely. You know, there, there was a poll recently about the, about the dec- that showed that a declining portion of Americans you know, see that this uh, that our country uh, even stands for and makes possible the American dream anymore. People are losing faith in that. You know, that's been that's been a core belief for generations in the United States. This is the first time that people are starting to question whether or not that's possible. I mean, that's that's pretty hard to believe. Yeah. Uh, so, you, you know, I think there's more and more concern like that people see that this is the weakest recovery and it's not because you know 
global or technological forces dictate that. It's clearly just a result of the policy choice in favor of austerity and continued high unemployment that conservative policymakers are making in Washington, and some in Albany, Mm -hmm. to sort of enforce austerity and and limit uh, uh, employment growth and limit uh, wage and income growth. What do you think of this budget that everybody in Washington is slapping themselves on the back about having passed? Good or bad? Well, you know, I think it's a it's a uh, in, it's an indication of uh, the way the direction that things are going to go in Washington in the next couple of years, and you know, I think it's going to produce a a pretty mighty backlash come 2016 because it has austerity and tighten your belts writ uh, large all over it. That's the opposite of what the country needs at this point. We need investments in infrastructure and education. We need rising. Uh, we we need wage standards that are more meaningful. We need to raise the minimum wage so that more people can share in the prosperity that the economy creates. That budget is not going to produce that. James Parrott, as always, great to talk to you, man. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Mark. Happy holidays to right, you and you your too. family. Bye. James Parrott, Deputy Director, Chief Economist for the Fiscal Policy Institute. You can call me at triple eight eight seven four four eight eight eight. Triple eight, that's eight 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 seven four four eight eight eight. Or you can text me at nine one seven eight three oh three oh two three. Nine one seven eight three oh three zero two three. And that way, you know, if you don't have time to get on the phone, you, you know, and that sort of thing, you can text. It will come on my email and I'll read it on the air. I got a story and we're gonna take a quick break. Listen to a little plum blossom. But I got a story that is so unbelievable. I, I'm, I'm wondering now whether it was a hoax or not. I, I do have a story that was a hoax. But I got another story that I'm like sitting back saying, what? This comes out of Ferguson, Missouri, I might add. So stay with us. This is the Mark Riley Show. This is the Progressive Radio Network. Five minutes before the hour of seven o'clock. It's the Mark Riley Show on the Progressive Radio Network. And my good friend Harriet from Bayside is on the line. Harriet, good evening. Happy Hanukkah. How you doing? Thank you. Happy Hanukkah. Ha- Merry Christmas. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy um, winter solstice. Oh, yeah, the winter solstice. I forgot about that. Yeah. How you been? Okay. I've been okay. Um... I want to congratulate the president and the, uh, the governor, who I'm not that much of a fan of, usually. <laughs> yes, I know. You're talking about the fracking thing? Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. At least we know our drinking water is safe. And our air might be a little better than usual. And as far as the president is concerned, this should have happened many, many years ago. Why do you think it didn't, Harriet? Um, because there is too much opposition. There is too much opposition from right-wing Cuban-Americans, even a good Cuban-American, Senator Menendez, is opposed to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, he's got, a, he's got a large Cuban-American community in yeah. North Jersey, which he started out representing uh, yeah. in Congress before he became a senator. And I haven't spoken to you in a while, so congratulations to the youngest of the youngest person to receive a Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, um, Malala, yeah. Yes, and I was thinking very much of Malala when this thing from Pakistan happened. Oh, yeah, and she was one of the first people to speak up, you know. Yeah, well, that's what they tried to do to her. Yeah, that's just barbarism, Harry. It's nothing but barbarism. It's now you and I disagree on what to do about them. Well, see, I I don't know that sending troops in there to wipe them out is going to work. All I know is send them to hell where they belong. See, I, I think doing that is a uh, a process. It's not something real simple, and uh, I think yeah. it really starts, Harriet. I got to tell you, I believe it starts. By going after the people that give these folks money. They don't have ammunition and weapons and this sort of thing. They don't make them in a, in a, in a, a, a cave someplace. They buy them. Well, yes, that is true. Who funds them? Not me. I know, but we should, know, we should know. Everybody in the world should tax know. Money. I no, no, I, I, tax I'm, money isn't funding them. No, I'm not saying tax money. But yeah, whoever people's tax money. Whoever is funding them yeah. should be exposed. Yes, and they okay. should not be able to do one small bit of business anywhere in the civilized mm-hmm. world. Period. Now, anywhere. And one more thing about Kim Jong Kim Jong Un. Yeah. He's threatening us with terrible things to happen if we dare have this release this movie? I don't know if it's him. I'm not sure and it's him. Do you know what that reminds me of? Do you remember um, Salman Rushdie? Oh, yeah. Wrote a book, but there were brave, bo- you know, bookstores that sold it. Yeah, and the thing is, Harriet, this is supposed to be a comedy, for God's sake. It's not, well, you know, it's not some huge drama or something. And again, well, I don't know who... it fun of him, though, I think. It did. But, I mean, we've had movies made fun of his father. Did yeah. you ever see, uh, what was that, Team America? No. Yeah, it was one of those animated kind of... It was a really yeah. vulgar movie in its own way. But that made fun of him. That made fun of his father, Kim Jong-il. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's not outside the realm of possibility... Right. That somebody would choose to do a spoof of a guy that's, you know, at least in the West, universally reviled. But uh, the, I these guess threats, he's ultra sensitive. Yeah, if you assume he's behind all of this. I don't think he's opposed to it. 
Oh, I, I wouldn't think he's opposed to it either. But, you know, I, I mean, look, if if somebody in another country had had done uh, a, a movie, even a comedy, whose premise was, let's come to America and assassinate the president, how would Americans feel? Yeah, I know. Even well, if it was satire, how would Americans react to that? Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> these days, um, we have people in this country who hate our president so much. Yeah, I know. I was going to say use Bush as an example rather than Barack Obama. Speaking of Bushes, I'm getting to that, Harriet. Okay, <laughs> I'm getting to that. Got to run. But, but I wanted to say he's the only. Republican candidate who's who's um, qualified to be president, and he's the only one who can win. Well, I mean, look, uh, they've had people who were not qualified to be vice president who ran and lost, if you know who I'm talking well, about. Well, sure. So, you know, I, I, qualification, I don't even know what the qualifications are supposed to be in this country um, to be president. That you can run a country, that you're capable of running a country. Yeah, but the only people who have shown that are past presidents, and they can't run anymore. Yeah, I know. But at least this one, uh, no, we've had um, this president's brother. And his who father. I think, who, well, the father was capable, the brother was not. Yeah. But, I mean, which one do you judge him on, the father or the brother? Um, I think he's more like his father. At least when you speak him, he speaks in complete sentences <laughs> and pronounces words correctly. Interesting. Harry, thanks a lot. Okay. Have a great too. holiday, okay? You too. Take care. Take Bye-bye. Care. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, I, I was going to get to the whole thing about Jeb Bush versus Hillary Clinton. Uh, Jeb Bush, by the way, uh, made news by saying he's exploring the possibility of running for president. I don't know. I'm, I'm not real, real psyched about either one of them, to tell you the truth. Jason, you know who my choice is? I'll tell you who my choice is. Elizabeth Warren. I think Elizabeth Warren make a great president. I, I don't know that it's going to happen. I don't know that, you know, she's actually going to run. But I think she'd make a great, great president. And I think she's Im- eminently qualified to be president. You can text us at 917-830-3023, or you can do what Harriet did and call us at 888-874-4888. Now, I have the following story in front of me, which means someone somewhere printed it. It would be totally unbelievable, I mean totally unbelievable, if somebody hadn't printed it somewhere, and I'm still kind of rubbing my eyes saying, my God, how in the deuce did this happen? Witness 40 for the Ferguson Grand Jury has been allegedly, according to a report, exposed as a racist, mentally ill felon who lied about the shooting. Witness 40, who appeared before and testified before the grand jury looking into the shooting death of Michael Brown by police officer Darren Wilson, was a racist, mentally ill felon who lied about the shooting. Let me tell you what, what the, the meat is on the bones here. Maybe you want to talk about this. And this is from Sa- Sasha Goldstein in the New York Daily News. 
A mentally ill woman who used the N-word to describe blacks and previously lied to police about witnessing a high-profile crime was allowed to act as witness 40 for the Ferguson grand jury, even though she likely was not there and was a known outspoken backer of Officer Darren Wilson. This is according to the smoking gun. You know, the smoking gun, uh, they're not uh, a non-credible outfit, if you know what I mean. The woman's name is Sandra McElroy. She's a convicted felon. She didn't give police a witness statement about the killing of Michael Brown until September 11th. The shooting took place on August 9th. She didn't give a witness statement until September 11th, well after several descriptions of the shooting had been detailed in the press. And her now oft-cited account that Brown charged a defenseless Wilson, quote, like a football player, and you know, that was very heavily played up, follows much of what Wilson told investigators about that day. But her stories, given to local and federal authorities and presented over two different days to the 12-person grand jury, are conflicting and filled with bizarre twists and details that make it likely she didn't even witness the shooting. Now, I'm going to stop there. All right. Ask yourself the following question. How does a racist convicted felon who obviously and vocally and publicly supported the cop in this case get to testify before the grand jury when there's a possibility, a possibility? I'm not even going to say it's certain, but a possibility. She wasn't even there to witness the shooting. And she was the one, like Darren Wilson, who said Michael Brown charged Darren Wilson like a football player. That's her words. Quote, like a football player. This is crazy. Now, uh, you know, obviously Reverend Al Sharpton and others are saying, you know, this gives new hope that, you know, something else could happen in this case because the grand jury process was not fair. There was questionable testimony. If all this is true, amen to that. But it leaves open the very real question. How does a mentally ill convicted felon get in front of a grand jury to give witness testimony in the first place? How does that happen? I don't understand. I do not understand. Now, responsibility for this witness 40, Sandra McElroy, according to Al Sharpton, lies in the hands of St. Louis County Prosecuting Attorney Robert McCulloch. Now, apparently, there wasn't a whole heck of a lot that was believable about this woman from the very beginning. She told investigators in October she was in Ferguson, which was 30 miles from where she lives, the day of the shooting because she wanted to pop in on a friend she hadn't seen in 26 years and she had gotten lost. That's an account that was given to the grand jury. She was asking for directions from a man on the street when Brown attacked and charged the officer, she said, forcing Wilson to open fire. Now, McElroy, once the panel broke for the day, this grand jury told prosecutors she had written down her account and offered to bring in her journal so she could make sure I don't get things confused because then it will be word for word. When she went back 11 days later with the written account, the story was completely different. The first journal entry. Now, this is, this is, <laughs> I would have stopped the grand jury right here. 
All right. This is from her journal. Well, I'm going to take my random drive to Florissant. Need to understand the black race better. So I stop calling blacks N words and start calling them people. Uh, she's trying to understand black folks, supposedly. And all of her statements, by the way, were made under oath. How, how, do, you, how do you do this? She was convicted of felony check fraud charges, given three years probation, according to the smoking gun. She had been diagnosed, she told the grand jury, as bipolar, but hadn't taken her med- medication in 25 years. Uh, very strange. Very strange. And used escalating racial slurs in a separate case. Jason, this is beyond me, man. I don't understand this. How does an incredible witness end up testifying as if she's credible? Can you say do over? <laughs> Because I would certainly be looking for a do-over, and I would be asking some very serious questions to this prosecuting attorney, McCullough, whose father, I think, was killed by a black guy. His father was a, uh, his father was a cop or something. But leave that aside for now. There's just no excuse for this. None whatsoever. Uh, the latest from the Bill Cosby front. And I'm still kind of sort of perplexed that there is a Bill Cosby front. But there is. His wife, Camille, uh, who, by the way, has has been at his side. I think they got married in like 1964. They've been married for a long time, half century. Uh, She came to Bill Cosby's defense and she faulted the news media, 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 media. For what she said was a failure to scrutinize the women who have made the accusations. Now, Camille Cosby ought to know that undue media scrutiny of people who make uh, accusations of this type would backfire on the media. There would be a huge backlash from women's groups, advocacy groups and others if the media started saying, you know what, we're going to look into the backgrounds of these people and find out whether or not they actually have an axe to grind or whatever. Uh, Camille Cosby says, quote, it is a portrait of a man I do not know. It is also a portrait painted by individuals and organizations who many in the media have given a pass. There appears to be no vetting, says Camille Cosby of my husband's accusers before stories are published or aired. An accusation is published and immediately goes viral. Uh, It's been like two dozen women now. And they publicly allege that they were sexually assaulted by Cosby. I mean, Kathy Lee Gifford? (laughs) Hey, Jason, Kathy Lee Gifford? Asked for, uh, uh, she says Cosby tried to kiss her. I don't, I don't know what that means. Was that supposed to be a prelude to something? I don't know. I, and I'm not trying to make light of any of the accusations that have been made here. Uh, what I also find paradoxical is that Bill Cosby himself made a pitch to black media. Uh, some of whom might not have been all that friendly 
to saying, uh, to his saying, that black media ought to stay neutral in all. I don't know what that means, but black media ought to stay neutral. I guess maybe not publish these allegations or maybe not give them any weight or whatever. But, you know, there's some in black media who aren't all that happy about Bill Cosby with all of that, you know, castigating of poor black people that he had kind of kind of made his stock in trade over the last few years. There are some really critical folks. As a matter of fact, I think Michael Eric Dyson wrote something, if not a book, about Bill Cosby and some of these allegations. So I don't know if he's going to find safe passage in the black media. At this point, I, I read earlier today, uh, one of the investigations of a rape allegation or a sexual assault allegation is not going forward. Apparently, they didn't find a whole heck of a lot of credible evidence. Text me, won't you, at 917-830-3023, 917-830-3023, whatever may be on you. You don't have to talk about Bill Cosby. You don't have to talk about Witness 40, although I find that utterly Utterly unbelievable that that guy McCullough ought to be drummed out of office tomorrow. So, oh, you can talk about Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton. Uh, I don't know that America's re- I, as an American. I don't know that I would be ready for a third Bush in the White House. OK, I, I see Harriet is kind of. You know, she kind of sort of thinks he's not the worst guy in the world. Maybe he's not. But I'm just not, you know, I ain't down, as they say in the community. And I don't know if I'm down that much for a second Clinton. Like I said, I would prefer Elizabeth Warren to anybody who has made a noise about running for the presidency. And I don't know that she has. But she would get my vote. But, you know, they're going to try and Kucinich Elizabeth Warren. We're going to try and turn her into a latter-day Dennis Kucinich, and it would be sad if they managed to get away with it. Uh, prosecutors in New Jersey have charged four people in a series of home invasions and robberies that sent a wave of fear through the Indian-American community in central New Jersey. Not only a wave of fear through them, but apparently this ring of miscreants was also doing the same kind of thing in other places in Texas, uh, and other states. Uh, it's, like, ridiculous. Uh, apparently, most of the people that have been busted here are people of color, which I guess means some people won't say anything about it. Uh, I don't know why, <laughs> but uh, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And the full force of the law ought to be brought down on these people for targeting any, any group of people. Indians, Pakistanis, tall people, short people, I don't care who they targeted. First of all, home invasions are uh, one of the worst violations, I think, of, of a person that you can have other than a physical violation. So, I, you know, my thing is, yo, no, no, those folks should not find any safe harbor among African-Americans, Latinos or anybody else for that matter. Uh, this kid, uh, I think his name is Muhammad Islam. Do you hear about him? 
Jason, he's the guy who said he's a, like a high school senior. He goes to Stuyvesant. He said he uh, made $72 million bucks trading in penny stocks. And then it turned out it was, how best to put this, a stinking hoax. How about that? Now, it's one thing, you know, for a high school kid, you know, to put one over on his friends or whatever. New York Magazine published a story about this kid. They had to, of course, apologize for it. Uh, the magazine issued the apology yesterday and said in a bank statement Muhammad Islam provided the magazine's fact checker showed that he was worth eight figures. Of course, it turns out that bank statement was falsified. Says the magazine, quote, we were duped. Our facts checking process was obviously inadequate. We take full responsibility, and we should have known better. New York apologizes to our readers. Now, what's interesting is, after Muhammad Islam, and by the way, this is our Tudor Ridiculous story, after Muhammad Islam turned around and denied it, New York Magazine stuck with the story (laughs) on Monday. Of course, by yesterday, they were issuing the blanket apology, a couple of excerpts of which I just, uh, just shared with you. Is this, as a friend of mine said on Facebook, and you know who you are, is this just like journalists not being what they used to be? Journalists who get sloppy and slack? I mean, uh, you know, the kid's not at PS52. He's at Stuyvesant High School. I guess that makes him brilliant and smart enough to dupe a magazine, I guess. But uh, I, I don't understand it. I I don't understand how you get away with something like that. Now, the other two, the ridiculous story, I got to do two because I I can't let this one go. Okay. Uh, The Port Authority. You know about the Port Authority, right? They just uh, pulled another buck out of your pocket a couple Sundays ago to cross the George Washington, Lincoln Tunnel, Holland Tunnel, whatever bridges and tunnels they oversee. Well, they spent nearly $200 million in the first nine months of this year just on overtime. Half of that, not $192 million, about $95 million, supplemented the salaries of Port Authority police. Uh-oh. <laughs> now, here's the kicker, ladies and gentlemen. If this trend continues till the end of the year, the Port Authority will spend more on overtime payouts than on planned improvements to existing infrastructure like upgrading the path rail system. That might be something that Jerseyites might not want to clutch to their breast, if you know what I mean. I, I, I think they should break the stinking Port Authority up. I'm sorry. I, 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 you know, Jason, I don't want to leave on such a sour note. But I think they ought. I think they ought to break up the stinking port authority. If they can't do any better than this. Two hundred million bucks on overtime. Ninety-five million of it goes to the cops. What are they doing? Stopping traffic on the George Washington Bridge? <laughs> yeah, you got that right. We're out of here. Is it time for me to go, or can I stay longer, Jason? No. <laughs> no. Jason says he wouldn't mind, but others might. So I got to go. Keep listening to the Progressive Radio Network. Great programming here. We'll be back next Wednesday. God willing, in the creek don't rise. Thanks to Jason Taubenfeld for the Mark Riley Show. I am he. Have yourselves a great rest of the evening and a better week ahead.